was a couple of weeks back that in the question and answers we had, Mike raised an issue that came out of the internet. Amazing how many issues the internet raises. I think half of the problems that people have today, or half of the things we have um, great concerns about and great fears about and great lamenting about and we talk about so much, I, I have a solution for a lot of those problems. Turn off the phone. <laughs> Turn off the internet. If you get off the internet, you're not going to meet or encounter those things that are made such matters of great concern in the world today. Because it's not the stuff of life that you're liable to experience in the world. It's a small segment of things that tends to just get blown up and magnified. One of the things on the internet that got blown up and magnified uh, was the question of whether Baptists can really be reformed at all. If it was not a misnomer, if it was not something of a contradiction in terms, that you can't be a, a, a Baptist and, and be reformed, even though you might have a love for the reformers and a love for the principles that sparked the Reformation, yet in the understanding of one particular theologian out at Westminster West, or his church historian actually, not a theologian, and to tell you the truth, I don't think a really good historian in my own estimation, I'm not a good historian myself, but I, am, I have an interest in history. I like to read history, and I like to read history thoughtfully. And I like to read history thoughtfully, not just to validate my own positions that I've taken, but really just to ask myself, well, what was going on then and there? What was actually happening in that historic situation? I think Bible study has taught me that, that I have to go back to the world of the Bible, which is not our world today. Um, They'd be very, feel very strange in our world today, and, and we'd feel very strange in their world. There's common things, of course, sin, and it's a common thing. There's uh, you know, the promises of God. There's many things that do connect, yes, the modern world to the ancient world. But yet there are things that are so different that we would simply be strangers in that world, and they would be strangers in ours. So you really have to go back and see what was going on then and there in, in studying the Bible, and you have to go back then and there in studying of history. But in the, in the history of the church, Baptists existed in the time of the Reformation, not as really part of the Reformation, but they desired to be. Uh, they thought they were just taking the Reformation further, that the Reformers were reforming the church to a point, but when they got to the question of infant baptism, they got stuck. And they got stuck for uh, a number of reasons. I think some of it was just practical. The Reformation was a magisterial Reformation. That means that the magistrates, the civil authorities, they really had to say so as to whether the, the, the area that people lived in would be reformed or not reformed. That was true in the German principalities, where it was the prince, like the Elector Frederick, who determined, well, I'm supporting Luther in this whole reform movement. And so Wittenberg became Reformed or Lutheran, not so much what we call Reformed. That the designation of Reformed and Lutheran differed in history, but yet at the time they opted for the Reformation and they became Lutheran in that sense of holding fast to the Lutheran view of how the church was to be reformed. And that was true also in the uh, cantons of Switzerland where it was the city councils, it was the civic leaders and authorities that determined whether Calvin would come to or stay in uh, Geneva, Appy uh, asked to leave Geneva or return to Geneva. So when you have the, the authorities of, of government, 
that is so vitally interested in whether some, whether they declare for the Reformation or they denounce the Reformation, whether you could freely meet and worship or get persecuted, then the pastors have to work with the civil authorities. And working with the civil authorities, you know, civil authorities like to have unity within their realms. They like to have unity within the realm of where they govern, uh, both in the civil realm and, and, and church unity is an important part of that. As soon as Constantine in the 4th century uh, made Christianity the banner under which he fought, maybe he put the, the cross on his standard and he said through this sign that he triumphed and won the victory at the, the Milvian Bridge, I think it was. Maybe that was Julius Caesar. I forget. I think Constantine was at the Milvian Bridge, but I could be wrong. But anyway, he united the empire because the, uh, uh, and he, he wanted to unite the church. He wanted to make certain that church and state were all united together because it lent itself to civil peace. And uh, that's what the Romans thought were very important, not that people that uh, were not part of the, the, the state in, in a way of wholehearted conformity to laws and rules and regulations and rituals and practices. And so uh, you had it in... Um, in England, where I think one of the, I think it was James the first, he said, "No, no, uh, no bishop, no king." He said, "We got to get the, the bishops in, in sync, in, in line with what the the throne is is demanding." And through, so you have to have a unified church, and so you had to stay church. And Baptist said, "No, we don't think our children should be part of the of the church." Wait a minute, if they're going to be part of the state, they need to be part of the church. Church and state, in essence, became one. There was an overlap between the realm of the state and the realm of the church. And Baptists were looking to take that perspective and say, no, no, it's different. The church is not exactly the same as the state. Uh, We don't baptize unbelievers. Unbelievers live in the state, and they shouldn't be baptized. And, and, And that was a threat. And hence it was uh, the Baptists that were persecuted, not just by the Reformed, but the Catholics as well. Lutherans, Calvinistic Reformed people were all in sync with the notion that Baptists should be persecuted for their faith. There's an interesting thing where the Baptists found refuge. The Baptists found refuge in Holland. Holland has been a place really through the years that always welcomed the persecuted whether it was the English Puritans who were being persecuted by the king, whether it was the Baptists who were being persecuted by the other Protestants and other, other places. Holland took them in. Holland was the place where Menno Simons and the Mennonites found refuge and other Anabaptist groups like Baptists found refuge. It was in the Second World War that the Jews, uh, you saw the hiding place, or were welcomed by the Dutch, or hidden by the Dutch, protected by the Dutch. The Dutch were just wonderful Examples of that kind of open-hearted welcoming and tolerance and, and all the rest that a lot of times didn't get shared in other places in Europe. And I say that because, again, the Baptists believed that the Reformation should just take a step further in the fact that baptism was not a New Testament command. It was not part of New Testament life. That part of the things that made the New Testament and the New Covenant different from the Old Covenant was that everyone in the church of the New Covenant, everyone in the covenant people of God of the New Covenant knew the Lord. They all had this law written in their hearts. They all were believers. Baptism was given consequent upon faith. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Make disciples of all the nations, baptize in them. Who? Disciples. 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so, when the Baptist view, viewpoint, particularly after Munster, I mentioned Munster to you, when there was a group of Baptists that actually took over the city government and they turned the city of Munster into a place of, uh, uh, well, madness in a sense. Uh, Everybody just leaving their jobs, their professions, and they look to make the church uh, just a, a place where the second coming was being awaited. And uh, there were armies of Lutherans that came and uh, destroyed that whole effort to um, just take over the city government and the authority and make it into a Baptist uh, state. Baptists don't do state government, uh, ruling well. That's uh, we have the church that we should be concerned about. We're not supposed to be experts in ruling the state unless God raises up. And I think Abraham Lincoln came from a Baptist home, so his mother was a Baptist anyway. So we, we got some people that had gifts in that direction, but the church itself sees itself as independent. It sees itself as governed by the the headship of Christ, and it sees itself as being different from from the state. Um, Anyway, so this whole matter brought us into the consideration of Reformed Doctrine of the Covenants. It brought us into consideration as to where that took place. And uh, I I made mention of the fact that uh, this whole matter of covenant theology is not a matter of the period of the Reformation. And the Reformation began in the 1500s, the 16th century. 1517 was when Luther attached the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg and sparking the Reformation. Uh, And you don't see in the writings of the Reformers the highly developed covenant theology. That came later. That came in the 16th century. That came in the... uh, Well, there's a school in Holland in the city of Leiden, the University of Leiden, and it was there that there was a lot of controversy that emanated in the church. And I tried to explain it in terms of how those controversies sparked the development of this thing we call today covenant theology. And it was not a thing they did in order to mark the distinction between the Reformed and the Baptists. That was not the concern. That was not in the interests of the teachers and the faculty of the University of Leiden. What was the concern of the faculty of the University of Leiden was what was called the Remonstrance. That was a statement written by followers of a man by the name of Arminius, Jacobus Arminius. Uh, And that became something that sparked a contra-narrative to the Reformed teaching. It said, no, no, the the teaching of the Reformed churches needs to be changed because it doesn't include much in the way of... uh, the, the welcoming of sinners to Jesus. It, it, it's too heavily loaded on the matter of divine sovereignty. And that was one of the attacks. The, the Armenians attacked the decree. It, it attacked the statements of um, the reformers that had to do with the decree. The statement of the, here, a Belgic Confession, 1561. The Belgic Confession, 1561, is a reformed confession that's embraced by um, the churches that are. Dutch Reformed, uh, Christian Reformed Church, uh, the United Reformed Church, all those churches that came out of Holland, they um, hold to the Belgic Confession. And um, it's, it's one of their three forms of unity, it's called. And you have the Belgic Confession, and then this one, the HC, is the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism came into existence about two years later in 1563. 
And so what the Armenians were saying is that this has to be changed. The stuff in the Belgian Confession about the decree is wrong. The, Belgian, the Heidelberg Catechism about the decree is wrong. Then along with that, there came a movement called Amiraldianism, and that had to do with the atonement, and they wanted that change too. But that's the thing they were concerned about. They were developing this notion of the covenants, and now uh, the three covenants of covenant of law, grace, and redemption. So that was something in the background. And in the course of the next week, when I, when I figured that I hadn't fully de- uh, spoken to the issue of this whole matter, um, I went through the Belgian Confession, I went through the Heidelberg Catechism, I went through the salient points in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, and I tried to find anything about this covenant theology stuff. Uh, covenant of works, covenant of redemption, covenant of grace. As the later teachers in the 17th century articulated this thing, and I didn't find it. And so I'm saying to myself, well, you know, that's really clear. This is not a teaching of the Reformation. So to say Baptists can't be reformed because we don't hold to a doctrine that wasn't held to by the reformers, you got to get a better argument than that. you got to get a better argument. You can say we weren't part of the Reformation because we didn't believe in baptism as the successor to circumcision. I mean, that was the issue that was back in the 16th century. The reformers said you should baptize your children because Abraham and his seed got uh, circumcised. And so that was the issue. That was the argument. And, uh, but it's not this whole deal about covenant theology. It didn't exist. It didn't exist at the time. Anyway, I sent a text. I told you that last week. I sent a text to Pastor Greg Nichols. And let me just give you a little background about uh, Pastor Nichols. In fact, when I w- was in the academy in New Jersey years ago, that's a lot of the beginnings of my theological education, formal theological education, uh, Pastor Nichols was just beginning his systematic theology courses and so I was one of the first. I don't think I was the first. I think I might have been the second group of people to be taught the doctrine of the covenants. And um, so a lot of my understanding of the covenants and covenant theology got framed by Pastor Nichols' teaching and instruction. Um, again, I've gone on and developed understandings from that. But yet I always go back to that. I always go back to Pastor Nichols as a real good teacher in the area of systematic theology. And also he did a wonderful treatment of the subject of the covenants in history. How, one of the things that's so confusing about this, let me say this. I spoke to Rich Emmett, who grew up in Reformed Baptist churches like we did, some of us did. And um, he said that was, this was always a matter of real confusion to him. And so, well, welcome to the club. It's a matter of real confusion to me as well, because it's something that has so many different voices saying so many different things, and not everybody is speaking the same thing. Because everybody's trying to use the idea of covenant to accomplish an agenda. You know, the faculty of the University of Leiden wanted to use covenants to oppose the inroads of Armenianism and Amoraldianism. Um, this guy in California wants to view the doctrine of the covenants because he has a view of subscription to confessions that he wants to be pure and unsullied. And though the Heidelberg Catechism says nothing about the doctrine of the covenants he advances, the Westminster Confession of Faith has chapter 7. And there's nothing parallel in these earlier confessions. Westminster uh, came in the 1640s. I think 1644. Our Baptist Confession came in 1689. And so this is all later. This is all later. Um, And so when you look into 
to take the doctrine of the covenants to advance an agenda, you're probably not going to understand what covenants are about in the Bible. Um, there's another thing to say about the subject, and I'll say more about this later, is the fact that we've had archaeological finds that bring ancient Near East culture to our doorstep. Again, we say the ancients lived in a world a lot different from our world. We wouldn't feel comfortable there. They wouldn't feel comfortable here. But archaeology is something that tends to bridge the gap. And so when you've had excavations of the Holy Land, and you've had the excavations of the whole surrounding region, you have the Canaanites and their culture unearthed, the Egyptians and their culture unearthed, and you have the Mesopotamians, the the Syrians and the Sumerians, the modern Syrians, and then you have the Babylonians and the, uh, their culture on earth. And all those cultures touch upon the Bible, right? You read about Babylonians, the Chaldeans, you read about Assyrians, you read about the uh, Philistines, you read about Canaanites, you read about these cultures. This is the world of the Bible. And you find out, well, they had covenants and they have copies of the covenants they made with other nations. Well, you need to say, well, maybe there's a little bit more light that ancient Near East uh, culture or or archaeology uh, brings to light. And I believe it certainly does, since there are things that are sort of perplexing in the Bible that I think a lot of this new information we've, has been unearthed by the archaeologist spade uh, can bring to our clearer understanding. So again, in the 17th century, even when these documents began, uh, they didn't know that information. They didn't have, they didn't have access to it. Um, we do today, and we should benefit from it. But I'll say more about that later. But the question I asked Pastor Nichols, I said, I've been reading... The Confessions of the Reformation, Calvin. I don't see covenant theology. What am I missing? I told you last week he didn't get back to me. Well, Monday evening, I got a call. And I just looked back and it was like an hour and 20 minutes we spent talking about the subject of covenants. And he shed a lot of light and help to confirm a lot of my understandings about a lot of things. And I was very much appreciative of that whole discussion. But um, with respect to the question of were the Reformation documents, did it teach this stuff that I'm saying came later? He said no. And in fact, he says there's some Reformed writers embarrassed by that. And I hadn't read those Reformed writers. He had. He said he read, he t- I don't know, remember the guy's name. I think it was a United Reformed or Christian Reformed modern author who tackled the whole subject of why is it that the Belgian Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism don't say anything about this stuff. And he tried to make some argument in favor. It's not there, folks. You search for it in vain. You can try to superimpose it upon those earlier things, but it's just simply not there. Pastor Nichols, he said something like, he said, well, possibly it's there. He said in seedling form. And the basis for that was a statement that's made in the Heidelberg Catechism on the subject of baptism, where basically, I think what that's saying is that that our children are part of the covenant of God and the church of God, really because of circumcision. They're going back to circumcision. They're not using this covenant theology doctrine at all. Uh, We don't have the Heidelberg Catechism in, 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 in our hymnal. This is the Psalter hymnal of the Christian Reformed Church that I'm looking at. And um, so... Uh, I saw a number of you going to the hymnal. You're not going to find it there. You're not going to find Heidelberg Catechism. You find Westminster Confession, but not Heidelberg Catechism. So I don't even think it's there in seedling form. That's a reasonable area you can agree or disagree upon. Um, 
the other thing that he mentioned to me that I thought was really interesting is that this whole question of was there this covenant that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden? And that's something that I took up with you. I think it was in the second week we did this. And um, I said there's simply no evidence I see of a covenant relationship. Certainly nothing developed like the covenant of works doctrine, which basically says man was came from the hand of his creator and was placed in the Garden of Eden and put on probation. And Adam's probation was, I mean, who do you put on probation today? You put criminals on probation, you know. It just doesn't seem like a proper category to think, well, do you need to see a parole officer every now and again? He's on probation. Um, is kind of anticipating he's going to do something wrong. Of course, God in his full knowledge of all things knew the, what the outcome would be. But it was a relationship of an image bearer. It was a relationship of a son to a father. It's Father's Day. We don't have our kids in our home on probation. <laughs> there are children. And uh, we relate to them along those, that basis. Um, you know, whatever way Adam was disowned and disinherited, in one sense, in another sense, he always remained to be the object of God's paternal care and love. And even when we say to our children, well, you can't be doing that and living in our home, yet our hearts are still with them. And there is that fatherly dimension to the relationship that people have to God. And certainly that's what brings us nearer to that in terms of redemptive sonship and adoptive sonship. We're brought back into the family of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But um, with respect to that whole matter of that relationship, Pastor Nichols, he said something interesting to me. He said that looking at the language of the Hebrew, where you have a form in the Hebrew, which is basically uh, the use of a double verb. Now, I've got to tell you this about the Hebrew language. Hebrew doesn't have the kind of extensive vocabulary that English has. And hence, the words they have, they use to the nth degree to convey meaning. And so in different relationships of words, they're trying to say different things. And in this matter of a double verb, my understanding is they're looking to express emphasis. They're looking to make an emphatic statement. They're underscoring the sincerity of the statement that's made. And in the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam, mat tomat, something like that. I don't think I have it exactly right. But it has, it's the word mat, which means dying. And then it has mat with a prefix, I think it's tomat, Mat tumat, dying, you will die. Um, it's infinitive with a, one, one verb is an infinitive, the other verb is an is a imperfect verb. And that construction, if you could say that in English, in infinitive, you would say, uh, to die, you will have died. To die, you will have died. And that's a construction that, again, my understanding is, God's just underscoring the whole thing. But Pastor Nichols said, in some contexts, you see that in covenant commitments. When God swears a covenant, when he did it to Abraham, for instance, in chapter 22 of Genesis, he says, Blessing, I will bless you. 
to bless you will be blessed. (laughs) And to multiply you will be multiplied. Now we see it in our translations as you will surely be blessed or you will certainly be blessed. Something like that is how the translator translates it. See, you never know. It's actually a repetition of the verb. You wouldn't know. You have to see it in the Hebrew that the verb is being repeated. Dying, you will die. Blessing, you will be blessed. Multiplying, you'll be multiplied. And since it's found in that covenant context, the same double verb construction with the infinitive and the imperfect uh, forms of the verb, uh, Pastor Nichols says it it can be, be thought that perhaps God was swearing an oath to Abraham since he swore an oath to, I'm sorry, swore an oath to Adam since he swore an oath to Abraham the only problem I have is that Genesis 22 says he swore an oath. He, it actually says that. It doesn't say that in Genesis chapter 2. And um, I'm not certain that that's correct, but it could be. I don't know enough about the various ways this construction is found in the Hebrew to say with certainty he's wrong. But he says something interesting that if, in fact, he's right, you have an incident. So I've always asked the question, why would a sinful, a sinless person question the word of God? So God gives a, a promise, or God gives a threat, or God makes a statement. Wouldn't a sinless person say, that's reality? Just accept it? Just embrace it? Now his statement to me is, well, one thing Adam never knew or, or experienced, or even probably could contemplate experiencing, was the absence of the love of God. That he lived under the canopy of the love of God. That's all he knew was the love of God. Now God's saying that if you you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, something's going to rupture this relationship. And he probably had no frame of reference. And so that if in fact this is an oath, if this is what a covenant would be, God would be saying, you really, 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 really will die. I mean, underscore that like ten times because you have no knowledge of what death is and you have no knowledge of the peril that you'd be in. And again, I'm not sure that that's the case, but it is interesting. It is interesting that that, you know, you, you bring it into the world of, of a, a sinless creation. And again, you would have no knowledge of what death is. We live under the canopy of death. We live with the reality of death ever before us. And we say, how do we know we will live? How do we know we have hope? How do we know that we will not perish? How do we know that this everlasting life is a real thing in a world of death? And God says, I will underscore the promise with an oath. And we take comfort and we take consolation and we have hope and we have joy when God speaks to us in the way of covenant. Uh, what would it have meant in Adam? It would, be, it would be a category all of its own back there. So again, I'm not certain when the Bible will speak of covenants as a redemptive idea, that God comes in redemption to save his people, and covenant is kind of the structure that he uses. Um, I think that's what we really have to be concerned to expound and open up and articulate. What does all that mean? Now, uh, how many would say the, the, the subject of covenants is confusing? I think Mike said yes. Okay, we have a couple that say yes. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I think it is. I think it is confusing. Again, we don't really speak of covenants today. 
Uh, unless Christians raise it up, I think that we, in, in opposition to gay marriage, there were a bunch of Christian people that said, "Well, let's have uh, uh, our own category for marriage," and they called that covenant marriage. Um, and you know, I, I can get, I get that, I get that. It, it's something that's entered into with a great deal of um, sincerity and meaning, and it's sworn with an oath. We take vows in the presence of God. That's all well and good. Um, but that's not, again, how the um, biblical understanding emphasizes it. In fact, I think there's a couple of references to the wife of your youth or the wife of your covenant or something like that, where covenant does enter into the marriage relationship. But the major part of covenant that you see in the Old Testament is really the... you know. It's really the idea of a, of a superior coming to an inferior. Someone who's a king coming to the people they conquer. And saying, now here's how this is going to go. Now that I've conquered you. Now that you are subject to me. Here's how the relationship is to go. This is how it's to be defined. That's how covenants generally were used. Um, you have instances in the life of Abraham. Where Abraham had problems with the Philistines, Abimelech, the king of Gerar, Gerar um, having problems with the matter of wells being dug and wells being filled in. I think that was in, uh, in the life of Isaac. And you have covenant relationships entering in. And the, the one that expresses it best, I think, is found in, um, in Genesis 20, 26. Genesis 26, and this is uh, there's an earlier one with Abraham and uh, Abimelech, Abimelech the king of Gerar, and now you have Isaac, the second generation, and um, it comes in the context of conflict. Let's first begin with the fact that it's in this context that the Lord appeared to him in verse 2. Chapter 26 and verse 2. The Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him, that is Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. I don't think that's blessing, I will bless you. I shall bless you. And for you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. That's the covenant. The covenant is the oath-sworn pledge of God. That God says, I will be a God to you, and I will bless you, and I will give you this land, and I will give you these children. And there it is in verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. So the covenant with Abraham involved the land, it involved descendants, and it involved the blessing. So it's blessing land and descendants that constituted the Abrahamic covenant. And that's what's getting renewed to Isaac. God says, I'm going to be a God to you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you the blessing. And he speaks in terms of multiplication and he speaks in terms of blessing. In chapter 20, 22, it's blessing I will bless, multiplying I will multiply. Here it is multiplying, here I will bless. But God, in essence, is renewing the covenant. He's saying this covenant belongs to you, Isaac. You're the child of Abraham. You're the seed of Abraham. These promises I gave to your father, I renew to you. Because Abraham, verse 5, obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And so Isaac settled in Gerar. 
So God's presence is promised to him. God's blessing is promised to him. God's commitment is given to him. But there's a problem. In Gerar, he's experiencing the problem with Philistines, the problem with Canaanites, the problem with other people who've made no such commitment and no such promise to him. And so you have the whole matter of replicating the problem with his wife, uh, being put up, passed off as his sister, and uh, that's a matter of concern. And then there's the matter of the wells. The matter of the wells started in verse 17. In verse 17, so Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar, settled there, and Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And Abraham earlier enters into covenant. He enters into a relationship of covenant. And so this replicates the whole business of passing his wife off as his sister and the whole business of the wells and the digging of them and having these uh, adversaries uh, fill them up again it, it happens again and every time what Isaac is doing he's moving on he's moving on to the next place verse 23 from there he went up to Beersheba uh, the Lord appeared to him says I'm the God of Abraham your father fear not I'm with you I will bless you multiply you your offspring for my, for my servant Abraham's sake. So in the face of, of opposition, in the face of difficulty of the peoples of the land, God again comes and says, I will be a God to you. And he built an altar there and he worshipped. And then in verse 26, Abimelech went with him um, to Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, Fecal, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to him, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me? And you sent me away from you. That was earlier. He says, get out of here, Abraham, uh, Isaac. Uh, he was fearful of Isaac. He was fearful that the blessing of God was upon him. And so he sent them away. And they said, we see plainly that Yahweh has been with you. And so we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. So again, the idea of the covenant is the idea of a sworn pact. We'll swear, we'll swear vows to one another. We'll make oaths to one another. We'll make promises to one another. We will swear them with an oath. So that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you. What's the terms of the covenant? We'll be at peace with one another. There'll be no longer conditions of war. Conditions of, of adversity. We'll be having enmity and peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and they, ate and they drank. In the morning they rose early. They exchanged oaths. And Isaac went on their way, and they departed from him in peace. And the same day Isaac's servants came and told them about the well they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. And the, and the problem stopped. The conflict stopped. Because now an arrangement had made, been made. And it's an arrangement that had been made with the swearing of oaths, the taking of vows, one with another. So that's what the nature of the covenant is. It's like a peace treaty. It establishes peace between warring parties. It establishes terms upon which relationships can go smoothly and run well. And everybody knows what their responsibilities are. Everybody knows what the problems will be if we don't keep our oaths, we don't keep our vows. And so God enters into covenant with people much like the covenants of the ancient world. He comes to a people that by nature are not worthy of his favor, of his peace, 
of his commitment, of his love, and says, I will be a God to you, and you will be my people. I will give you promises. I will enter into a relationship with you. Here are your responsibilities. God maps it out. And then oath-sworn pledges and promises are given. And covenants always seem to come in the midst of the uncertainty of relationships, where warfare could break out at any moment, where troubles can arise. And the covenants are the way to move forward. It's the way to be at peace. It's the way to avoid conflicts. It's the way that everybody knows what their responsibilities are to one another. And so when Jacob later enters into covenant with Laban, it's you stay on this side and we'll stay on that side. And we'll keep the terms. We will not violate what we have committed and pledged and promised to one another. Okay, so it's along that kind of a model that God comes and enters into covenant. And we saw last week, he begins it after the flood. Again, what can be a greater mark of the displeasure of one party against another and of peace not existing than the fact that God brings a universal flood to wipe off of the face of the earth the people that were violence doers and evildoers. And he says that he do, the reason he does it is because the thoughts of the intents of his heart is only evil continually. And then the flood just wipes them off the face of the earth. And then the flood comes to the rest on Ararat. Noah, his children, they get out. They do sacrifice. And God says he knows that the intents of the heart of man is evil continually. And therefore I won't bring a flood again. Wait a minute. That's the reason you brought the flood. Yeah. But now think about coming out of the ark with the trauma of the flood behind you. You would say, man, oh man, God really meant business with this whole question of judgment. How do we know this is not going to happen five years down the road? Because evil exists in the world. It's going to happen with the the sons of Noah right in the... when 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 he made a vineyard and he drank the fruit of the vineyard and you had that whole debacle that occurred. What happens after Babel? What happens after uh, the wickedness of man grows uh, full upon the earth? Why doesn't God bring a flood just about every fifth or sixth generation? You would think that that's what human beings would have deserved? Yes. But God says, I will make a covenant. I will bring the traumatized people of the earth who have experienced the reality and fierceness of my wrath, and I'll give them a promise. Totally gratis. Totally free. God didn't have to do it. But to lend stability to this world, to make it certain that there's day and night, there's seasons that will follow one another, there's opportunity to plant our, our crops, there's opportunity to you know, keep the festivals, the feast days, the fast days, all that regulated to the, the times of, of, of the life of, of his people. No floods coming to interrupt this thing. There's going to be a major part of regularity that's going to be part of human life. Now, again, it's no promise that if we just pollute the earth, uh, it's not going to have terrible, terrible consequences. You have Christians who say, well, you know, we can't listen to anything that science tells us about what the environment is, hap- is happening in the environment. Because God says there's going to be regularity, and so the world will never be destroyed. It, it, it says flawed, folks. It doesn't say smoke. It doesn't say the smoke that we experience from the fires of Canada will never happen. It won't say that uh, tsunamis won't come. It won't say that uh, uh, you know, many other calamities will come. I think we're responsible stewards of the creation that God has made. 
He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. There's to be a wide stewardship that humanity enters. And we shouldn't be taken for granted. You know, do you just live as we please and strip minds as we want and do everything we think is in our best interest to fulfill our desires and, not, and there'll be no consequences. There's always consequences for our actions. But the point is, God says regularity will be the norm in a place where human sin deserves divine judgment. The second time the scripture mentions covenant is in chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. And that's in the context of Abraham having experienced the blessing of God's promises, of God's paternal care, of God's directing him to go out of Ur the Chaldees to come into the land that he would promise to him. The reality that God has spoken to him of these promises of blessing, of of a a great progeny as numerous as the stars of the heaven and yet he comes to the place in chapter 15 when he's getting quite advanced in years he's been through this matter of following the Lord and hearing the promises of the Lord and still at this point after the war of the five kings um, the word of the Lord comes to him in chapter 15 and verse 1 in a vision fear not Abraham I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Okay, I got a promise in my hand, I got a promise in my heart, but I don't have a child in my family. Sarah's womb is empty and she's barren. Her body is getting past the age of bearing children, and my body's gotten past the age of being able to bear children. I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will bear, be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Look toward the heavens and number them if you're able. Before it was the, dust, the sand of the sea, now it's the stars of the heavens. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. He believed the Lord. He counted it to him for righteousness. And so there was a belief. There was a confidence. There was a certainty within his heart. God, whose promise, is able to fulfill what he has promised. And then God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? That's like the first uh, quivering of his uh, strong faith. You know, in hope he believed against hope, Paul tells us. But yet there was this point in which he had some questions. How am I to know? Lord, what will you give me in the way of underscoring your promises with reference to land, with reference to blessing, with reference to progeny, all these things that you promised me? Um, how will I know that I shall possess it? And here's what God told him to do. He says, bring me a heifer. Three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. They they remained whole on each side. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. But as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. 
And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be their servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So Abraham, you need to understand, my promises are sure, they are certain, but they're not going to be fulfilled in accordance with a quick timetable. It's going to take some time for these things to happen. You're going to have offspring. You're going to have sojourners. But the land you're not going to get in any measure of immediacy. I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. You're going to get this land, but there are other inhabitants of the land, and they're not yet ready for the judgment to fall. They're given a period of time, and God's going to wait until they take the time that God has offered them and given to them, and they've made poor use of it, and hence their iniquity is not yet complete. They're not ripe yet for this judgment. They're not going to yet, yet be displaced. Your descendants are going to go down to Egypt. Your descendants are going to be held in captivity. And then we read that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land. How shall I know, was the question. How shall I know that I shall possess this land? Well, God does something really, really strange. He makes them cut animals in half, put each piece over the side, and then he puts them to sleep. He puts them to sleep. Now, if you're a reader of the Bible in Hebrew, and you read about this of someone being put to sleep, what are you first going to think about? Now, you're in chapter 15, but you've already read like... 14 and a half chapters in the Bible. What's the precedent for God putting a deep sleep, someone into a deep sleep? Adam. 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 Lo and behold, God put him into a deep sleep. And what's the result? God formed a wife. He woke up and there's a wife that's been formed. God made a, a wife for him. God did something that's an, an act of creation. God forms something. I think the language of the Hebrew is that God erected her. It's like a building term. God built her out of the rib. So the woman's built. Well, God's building a covenant. God's doing something new. Something that didn't exist that now comes into existence. So I think this idea of of the creation of the woman comes in to the creation of the covenant as a deep sleep is put on the man and it's in this deep sleep there is this vision of the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passing between these pieces again it's the God who reveals himself in the fire in the burning bush in the glory of light and fire that emanates from the Shekinah glory, from the glory of his appearance on Sinai in the midst of flame and fire and smoke and all the rest. It's a picture of God passing through the pieces. Now, what's the meaning of the passing through the pieces? Well, 
I can get, tell you about ancient covenants and how they were done, but the, probably the best thing is to find a biblical answer, and it's found in the 34th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah. We're going to get there eventually. Chapter 24. If God gives us years. God's addressing the covenant unfaithfulness of the nation and of their king. And of the fact that God's going to put Zedekiah into captivity. He's going to get his eyes born out. He's going to see his children die before his eyes are born out, uh, born out and he's going to be taken captive into Babylon. And uh, it says in verse 8, the word of that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free as Hebrew slaves male and female so that no one should enslave his Jew enslave a Jew his brother and they obeyed all the officials all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would be set free his slave male and female so that they would not be enslaved again. So it was an oath-sworn promise made to liberate the captives. They obeyed, set them free, verse 11. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free. And they brought them into subjection as slaves. They re-enslaved them. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Yahweh, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. They wanted perpetual slaves. And God says, no. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. So this whole matter of entering into the covenant to release the slaves was solemnized by a covenant ritual that now God is referring to here. You made a covenant before me in this house that is called by my name. This had to do with the releasing of the slaves. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. That's the history. They had solemnized their oath by a ritual that took place in the house of God to release their slaves and went back on their word. Therefore, says Yahweh, you've not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty every one of you to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, to the sword, to pestilence and famine. Sword, pestilence and famine were the three uh, curses of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. Now, Leviticus 26 has a fourth, but there's three of them in Deuteronomy. Pestilence, sword, and famine. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant that did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf they cut in two and passed between his parts. 
So the whole thing they did up in the temple when they entered into this covenant, this ritual, is now explicated. What exactly did they do? They took a calf and they severed him in two. And then the people that entered into the covenant passed between its parts. Now God says, now that they've not kept the covenant, I will make them like the calf they cut in two. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And will give them into the hands of their enemies and into the hands of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his officials all give into the hands of their enemies. What's the, what's the point of it? Is that when the calf was severed in two and the people passed through, they saw what was done to the calf. And they're saying, in essence, if I'm not keeping the covenant promise I'm making and solemnized in the presence of God and in the house of God, may I be just like this beast that has been slain. And in fact, the language in the Hebrew of making a covenant the Hebrew word that's used is the verb karat. And you know what karat means? It means to cut. It's to cut. When, it's, when we read in, the, in our Bibles, our English Bibles, the Lord made a covenant. That word is, invariably, I do believe, I looked up a bunch of them, it's karat. It's saying in Hebrew, God cut a covenant with them. There was the cutting of the animals. There was the severing of the animals in two. And there was the solemnization of the vow by passing through the severed pieces. And basically what you're saying is, I'm declaring death on myself. I'm saying, I be like the dead calf or the dead animals that have been severed. May that be my fate. Whether the hands of the Babylonians or God comes in some sort of a supernatural judgment or brings it about. I'm, I'm declaring death upon myself. May I be just like that. Now imagine if you lived in that world and you entered the covenant with people and you were made to do this sort of a ritual, how horrific that would be. How absolutely dreadful that would be and how important your commitment would be that you had to keep your commitment or you would be just like these dead animals. And we say, I swear by this, I swear by that, I swear by that. No consequences. In an ancient covenant, there were consequences. There were serious consequences. The God who took note of the covenant unfaithfulness would visit in wrath. The king whose covenant you broke, he would visit in wrath. He'd make it just like the severed animals. There were consequences. Entering into covenant was a serious matter. But you go back to Genesis chapter 15, it's not Abraham that's going through the pieces. It's a theophany. It's the presence of God revealed in the burning pot, in the, fire, in, the, in the fiery torch that passes through the pieces. It's God who pronounces a curse on himself. How do you know, Abraham, that you'll, these promises will be yours? God will sooner die. God will sooner die than not keep the terms of his covenant. Can God die? And can the covenant be broken? No. How shall I know the terms of the covenant? The covenant keeping God swears by his own life. By myself I have sworn. 
Right? The Hebrew says he could swear by no one greater. He swears by himself that the heirs of the promise would have strong consolation. We'd have hope. We have overbrimming hope. It's impossible that God's word will not be fulfilled. You know, the purpose of the covenant is to give hope, it's to give assurance, it's to give certainty in a world of uncertainty that God's promises can be banked on. And it does so in this amazingly graphic and vivid way to bring that point before the mind and heart of the reader and of the person who enters into covenant with God. God could sooner cease to be than his covenant promise not be kept. Well, folks, we'll have more to say about this, but I really think that this is really the beginning of redemptive covenant right here. I think this is a creative act of God, bringing something into existence that didn't exist before. Yeah, there was that general covenant with creation where God says, I won't destroy the earth again. But really, it's creation itself that's the terms of who is the partner to the covenant. God says, I won't destroy the, the world again. But now he's entered into covenant with human beings to be a people to them, to be a God, I'm sorry, to be a God to them, to have them as his people. And it's this covenant that I think what we see happening in the, in the rest of the Old Testament is getting confirmed generation after generation. It's getting renewed when the covenant commitment and promises got broken. And so you see a series of covenant commitments and covenant confirmations and covenant renewals. But it's all based on the same covenant transaction that God made with Abraham. And so what you see, in the and my time is gone, is you see this unity of God's plan and purpose to be a God to his redeemed people. Either those who redeem typically from Egyptian bondage and their descendants, or those that are truly redeemed from sin and its consequences through the new covenant blood of Jesus, which is the blood of the new covenant. It's God redeeming a people and being a God to them and pledging his faithfulness to them in all generations that the redeemed would know the certainty of the commitment that God has to his people whom he loves and the people on whose behalf he acts, the people whom he brings to himself and is determined never to leave them nor to forsake them. That's a glorious concept. That's an amazing concept. And we don't need it to buttress any other argument. We don't need it for decree. We don't need it for for atonement. We don't need it to put Baptists at odds against Presbyterians. We don't need it for any other purpose, just to suck the sweetness of the concept and have it minister joy and hope to us as God's people. Let's pray. Father, so thankful we are that you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. We're thankful for the strong hope your people have because of who you are, because of your promises, because of their certainty, because it's impossible for you to lie. It's impossible that you would ever die. It's impossible that you could, would not keep the very promises you've made to your people. And for this we are filled with strong hope and consolation in the midst of an uncertain world that we have such certainty in you. We ask your blessing to be with us as we consider these things. We ask your blessing to be with us as we fellowship with one another in the time uh, uh, that we have to do that before we enter into the morning hour of worship. Draw near and meet with us, we pray. 
as we seek you together, coming in Jesus' name. Amen.